Christ's name, amen. So we've been looking through the five solas of the Reformation. You remember that 500 years ago, Martin Luther goes up to that castle door in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nails the 95 theses to the castle door there in that town. And the shockwaves that result from that are incredible. Like I mentioned last week, every single one of you, whether you realize it or not, you have all been affected by the Protestant Reformation. You have all been impacted by what Luther and Calvin and Melanchthon and so many others did 500 years ago. And the spread of the gospel, the recovered true gospel that we've been looking so closely at. Specifically in regard to grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. We started our series with the concept of scripture alone. And that that scripture itself is our foundation. And like I mentioned last week, we can view it like it's a temple of some kind, maybe from a couple thousand, that was built a couple thousand years ago, where you do have the foundation that is Scripture. That is our foundation here at our church. We place all of our, our, our faith and trust and hope from the things that we learn from this book. This is our authority in faith and practice, and so we look to it. It is our foundation. But then the things that we glean from it are essentially those pillars, specifically in regard to salvation. That our salvation does come to us by grace alone. It does come to us through faith alone, and it comes to us in Christ alone. And so if if Scripture is our foundation, if we have the pillars of, of grace and faith and Christ, what do all of those things then support? The roof, which is the glory of God alone. The temple roof is the pinnacle, if you will, of the other solas that we've looked at. The glory of God alone is the point. I have to confess that as I began studying for this sermon, I typed into the laptop, the glory of God, and paused. And just like with thinking through grace and the mind-blowing effect that the grace of God should have on all of us, the glory of God is an incredible thing to try to begin to talk about. So, typed in the glory of God. Not sure where to go next. It is such a big and beautiful, glorious topic. As the week progressed, my mind began to race to different passages concerning the glory of God. And no doubt if I asked you all to begin thinking about passages within Scripture about God's glory, you would come up with some of these. Maybe you would think about Moses in the book of Exodus. And Moses, he goes before the Lord. He's before the Lord and he says, please show me your glory. If I had a chance to speak to the Lord in that kind of a way that Moses had an opportunity to do, I don't think I would have said, please show me your glory. I would have been scared out of my mind to ask for that. But Moses says, please show me your glory. God, of course, famously takes Moses and he hides him in the cleft of a rock and even puts his hand over to cover Moses to protect him from his glory as he passes by. And and as God passes by Moses, Moses is able to get a glimpse of of the backside of God and to, to see something of the glory of God in that moment. Or when Moses comes down from the mountain and he has the tablets of stone and he comes before the people and the people are all really wigged out because Moses' face is literally glowing as a result of being in the presence of God. And from then on, having to veil his face 
You think of the glory of the Lord and maybe your mind jumps to Matthew 17, which we've looked at together in the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is on that mount and and Elijah and Moses both come down and they're standing with Christ and and Jesus becomes very bright and and his clothes are pure white and dazzling and, and Moses and Elijah are there beholding the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. John famously says in the beginning of his gospel, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. What would it mean to behold the glory of the Lord and how would that change your life? These are just a few examples of glory, but we still haven't really answered the question. What is the glory of the Lord? I like the way one person explained it at one time. They said that the glory of God is the going public of God's holiness. Like in Isaiah chapter 6. Do you remember in Isaiah 6 where he has this vision of the Lord and the train of his robe and all that. But, but, but the, the seraphim, they're calling back and forth to each other saying, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his. Why don't they say holiness? Because in some way, the, the glory of the Lord is that going public of the holiness of God. That, that the holiness of God shines out and is manifested by the glory of the Lord. And this is something that is intrinsic to him. But this is a motif throughout Scripture in the Psalms. He says, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. This is mentioned over and over and over again. And one day it will perfectly be so in the new heavens and the new earth where the glory of the Lord is shining and we worship him in glorified bodies and everything is perfectly glorifying God. But when the holiness of God is on display, it is displayed, I think, as glory. And so this glory of God is something that is innate to him. This is not something that he goes out and searches for and accumulates for himself. This is something that is innate to God. It is is his, the glory of the Lord. It simply belongs to him and it belongs to no other. And so this glory of the Lord is something that is His. It is something that belongs to Him. It's something that cannot be taken away from Him. His glory does not ebb or flow depending on your performance. His glory is simply His glory. And it is constant because God is constant. His glory never changes. But then there's the aspect of His glory like we heard in our call to worship this morning in Psalm 29 where it says, Ascribe to the Lord glory. And so although glory is intrinsic to who God is, there is a facet in which we, as His creation, ascribe to Him glory. And this is what Paul does in the end of verse 36. He ascribes to the Lord glory. He gives His doxology. But before we get there, I want you to look at verse 33, where we see really several exclamations from Paul concerning God that really lead Paul toward verse 36 and his doxology. He says this in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. That word for depths there carries the connotation of extreme depth. This bottoming out Depth. This is the same word used over in Corinthians where it says that the Spirit of God uh, is the one searching the, the deep things of God. This is not canoeing 
down a lake or, or down a river, and you know that there's a particularly deep part. This is like boating over the Mariana Trench. This is like boating over just miles and miles of, of depth that are really insearchable to us. This is what the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, uh, this is the kind of depth that should come to our minds when we're considering these things about God, His riches, His knowledge, His wisdom. Uh, you, you could try to maybe even dive into the Mariana Trench. You could get the best scuba gear that, that, that the world has to offer and we could put it on ourselves and we could try swimming down as deep as we could. But the, the reality is none of us could ever do it. We could never swim that deep down to the bottom. And the same is for someone who is going to search the depth of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. You, you could attempt to make that descent and I would encourage you all to attempt to make that descent. Search out the deep things of God. Study His riches. Study uh, about His wisdom and knowledge and all the things that He's done. Try to read the word in such a way that you want to understand him and you want to under know and you want to know him but the truth of the matter is you will never plummet him you cannot plummet god in fact you'll never really even scratch the surface of the riches of god and this is really the first clue as to what our response should be when something happens that you don't understand but in a positive way. Maybe you see something scientifically or maybe you see somebody do something and it's just incredible. And you like, can't even fathom, how could that person do that? You just kind of step back and just kind of praise them, right? When we consider the depths and the wisdom and knowledge of God, it just shoves us back and we say, we, we can't understand it. And so all we can do is give Him glory. You may have noticed that we live in an age of excessive exclamation points. Let that sing in. An age of excessive exclamation points. You get on the internet, you get on your cell phone and you text message somebody, you write a sentence and there's like eight exclamation points at the end of that. But did you notice what Paul does in verse 33? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! Exclamation point. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! Exclamation point. And he's using these things well. He's not using like eight of them, although I think that's probably his intent. And so we've kind of translated over to us. Just imagine eight exclamation points at the end of those sentences, right? How unsearchable is God? How inscrutable is God? How You can't even begin to figure out the depths of our God. This really packs the crescendo to praise to God here within these praises. Paul is praising the Lord with exclamation points. Beginning with the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. But then moving on to how unsearchable are His judgments. Something many of you probably do every day is you open up a search engine. You hop onto google.com and you plug in a few words, you hit enter. And what Google will then do for you is it will then show you just about everything the internet has to say about what you are searching for. But Google cannot exhaust God. Google cannot reveal everything there is to reveal about the judgments and ways of God. If there was some way to put Google onto God and to type in the glory of God or the ways of God or the judgments of God or the riches of God, it could not exhaust God. It simply could not. So we have these exclamations of Him. Oh, the, the depth of the riches. His wisdom, His knowledge, His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. But then you notice, if we're going to continue to look at punctuation, he goes from exclamation to examination. Look at verse 34 and 35. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Question mark. Or who has been his counselor? Question mark. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Question mark. And so these questions are really rhetorical questions, aren't they? They're not meant to be responded to. They're not meant to have a, a, an answer that is unknown. The answer is obvious to those who are reading them. But what he is doing is he is making a point by asking these questions to us. So who has known the mind of the Lord? The answer is obvious. Nobody can know the mind of the Lord except the Lord himself. Or who has been the counselor of the Lord? We hear this kind of question in the book of Job as well. Obvious answer. Nobody can counsel the Lord because his ways are perfect. His judgments are inscrutable. Or who has given the Lord a gift that he might be repaid? The answer is obvious. Nobody can give the Lord anything. Because everything is already owned by him. And so the mind of the Lord cannot be fully known other than what he has revealed to us in creation and the world. The Lord cannot be counseled because he does all of things well anyway. In regard to the gifts, he already does own everything. So God can never be indebted to you. God can never look at you and say, hey, thanks for doing that for me. I owe you one next time. No, you cannot give him a gift that cannot be repaid. It's not the way it works. And so all of these exclamations, the first few exclamations, and a few questions where he's literally wondering, it all moves into verse 36 where he then begins to praise God. This is really the resolve. This is the bottom line of all that he's talked about in the last couple verses in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So the first statement from Paul The sentence here in verse 36, the first sentence, is utterly comprehensive in its scope. There's nothing outside of that first sentence in chapter 11, verse 36. Do not dilute the words, all things. What things are from God? All things. What things are through God? All things. What things are to God? All things. All things means all things. Everything is from to or through God Almighty. From Him, to Him, and through Him. And this is the testimony of some other verses as well. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says, Yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. 1 Corinthians eleven twelve, And all things are from God. Colossians 1, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Hebrews 2.10, for whom and by whom all things exist. So for him are all things. So we worship a God who knows the end from the beginning because he has determined the end from the beginning. If God does not know the future in precision and accuracy and perfection, then he fails to be God. If God somehow before the creation of the world looks down the portal of time and sees certain things happen and and then makes his decision based off of those things, what does that mean about God? That means God learned something. And if God learned something, then he is not God. All things are from him. The creation is from him. And in response, the creation then ascribes to him all that he is due. Psalm 19, the the heavens are declaring the glory of God. So our salvation is from him. And then as those who were created in salvation as new creations, we then ascribe to him the glory for all that he has done. 
And so every circumstance in your life is from him. He has it all mapped out. His perfect plan is in place. He's absolutely sovereign in all things. You consider one of the famous verses from Romans chapter 8, where he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice that Paul does not say, only good things work out according to his purpose. Good things, bad things, in-between things, boring things, whatever we deem them as from our perspective, they are all going to be worked out for the glory of the Lord. And so Paul can be confident that all things work out because he has the theology in Romans 11.36 that says, For from him and to him and through him are all things. Therefore, I know that all things in my life and in your life, it is all going to be worked out according to the glory of God and it's going to be for your good. So this is an absolute statement of the highest order, this first sentence in 36. And it can only lead us in one direction that the Apostle Paul goes to in the next sentence of verse 36. So if everything that we experience in life, this creation and our salvation and our relationships and our church and everything that we experience in this life is from him to him and through him, then the only right response is that we should have that we should have is to glorify him. End of verse 36. To him be glory forever. Amen. So the first sentence is your theology. This is what I understand about God. I I understand that all things are from Him, to Him, and through Him. So then on this side is my doxology. I am going to praise Him for those all things, everything that He has done. Christian, there there are not many things in your life right now that you are going to do forever. But one of the things that you are going to do forever is glorify God. That, That is one thing that you are going to do forever. You're not going to remain married forever. You're not going to be a dad or a mom forever. You're not going to work the same job forever. You're not going to live in the same house forever. You're not going to celebrate the same holidays forever. You will not stay in the same house. None of that is going to be forever. But there is one thing that that will be forever, regardless of what we are doing in eternity, and that is going to be giving God glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has famously asked, what is the chief end of man? What is your chief end? What does it all go toward? And the answer is this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think they got it right. Our chief end on this earth should be to glorify God, to enjoy God. And these are two things that you are going to be doing forever if you are a Christian. And there's a ton of scripture to back this up. In fact, as I was researching for the sermon, I was stunned with how often within the same verse you see the word glory and forever. Romans 16, to the only wise God be glory forevermore. Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Philippians 4, to our God be, and Father be glory forever and ever. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of ages eventually be glory forever and ever. 1 Peter 4, 11, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, on and on and on to revelation, uh, that, that, that to him who sits on the throne and to the land be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, the things that you're doing now, again, you will not always be doing, but there is one core piece of it that you will always be doing. You will always be ascribing to God glory. You won't be ascribing angels glory. You won't be ascribing glory to yourself. 
You won't be seeing Paul and Moses and Abraham and giving them a piece of glory. You will be giving glory to God alone forever. And to come back around, he is worthy of our ascribing him glory forever because he is the God of glory, because that glory is intrinsic to him. In fact, when you consider the Trinity itself, Father, Son, and Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity are referred to as glory. So in Ephesians 1, calls him the Father of glory. In 1 Corinthians 2, the Lord, Jesus of glory. Or 1 Peter 4, the Spirit of glory. And so the Trinity themselves, all three persons, the Spirit of glory, the Father of glory, the Lord of glory. Or what it beautifully says over in Psalm chapter 24, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And this King of glory, our God of glory, His glory can never, ever be taken away from. It can never be added to. And I want to emphasize this again with this one quotation. No one can add anything to God's intrinsic glory. God is who He is, never diminishing, never increasing, forever the same. The sovereign ruler, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-true, all-wise, loving, grace-giving, merciful, righteous, and wrathful. It is His intrinsic glory that God delights in making known to His creatures. And so just like you cannot add to the love of God, you can't make him love you any more or less. Or just like you cannot add to the holiness of God, you cannot make him any more holy or less holy than he already is. You cannot add to the glory of God because he is the king of glory and he is full of glory. His glory is perfectly magnificent and high and deep and wide. It cannot be any more perfect than it already is. He is the God of glory. And the truth about our God is that he is jealous over his glory. Only he knows the true dimensions of the truth that all things are from him and to him and through him. We cannot possibly fathom what that means in its entirety. And we'll be searching that one out, I think, for all of eternity. And we need to be clear to respond to the God of glory that all things come from, to, and through in the proper way and never in any way seek to bring glory to ourselves. We cannot live our lives seeking our own vain glory. This is why it is soli deo gloria. This is why it is glory to God, but not just left there. It is glory to God alone. When it comes to the glory of the God of glory, he is never in a sharing mood. Isaiah 42 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else. Our disposition to glory should be what we see in Psalm chapter 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. That needs to be our disposition. Even as we've been considering these five solas, specifically in regard to our own salvation, this is why it's so important to affirm that salvation comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That it is all of the work of God and not our own work. Because if you contributed any work to your own salvation, then that means that you're due some of the glory. That that is the logical step. That, That if you contributed anything to your salvation, work, or whatever it is, then that means you deserve a piece of the pie. And God refuses to share His glory. As Jonathan Edwards has said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. God has done all of the work. 
It is his grace. It is his gift of faith to you. It is himself that he lays on the cross. So therefore, he is the one who gets all of the glory. But this is where the the sweet news enters in. In that the God of glory has extended to us a gospel of glory. I cannot say that I've had an encounter like Moses. Where I was hid in the cleft of a rock or anything like that. I can't say that I've had a Mount of Transfiguration experience. I haven't had an experience like Paul had in Acts chapter 9 with skies open and Jesus speaks down to him and a bright light blinds him. I have not experienced anything like that. But what he has done for me and what he has done for you is he has displayed for us the beauty of his glory in the gospel. So that when you get a glimpse of the gospel, a real glimpse of the gospel, and you believe in that truth, you begin to get a glimpse of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 Seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel story is a story of glory. Oftentimes when we're giving the gospel to somebody, the first thing that we often do, if you kind of use that Romans road that maybe some of you have been instructed in, come to somebody who doesn't know the Lord and you take them to Romans 3.23 and it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of His glory because none of us have glory intrinsic to ourselves. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not glorifiable. We have nothing to do with the kingdom of light and His glory. But then you hear the story of what Christ has done. And in about a month, a few weeks, we're going to be looking at this. That Jesus comes to the earth. And the the glory of the Lord comes out and shines all about the shepherds. And they're all really afraid. But that glory of the Lord comes out. And Jesus is born into the world in Bethlehem. But then this baby that came to earth lives a perfect life. Constantly seeking to glorify the Father. And then as it mentioned in that Corinthians passage, the Lord of glory is crucified on the cross. He's resurrected in glory and he's ascended now into glory ever at the right hand of the Father. And we know that even in his return, when he comes back, he is going to, as it says in Matthew chapter 16, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And so when we consider a passage like Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. What else could our response be but to give God glory? How else could you live your life than to say this is what God expects? The the Bible, the theology says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Therefore, the only proper response is doxology. It is praise. It is glory. And specifically, think about it for on a couple levels of application, the first one being as individuals. As individuals, all of us have a responsibility to ascribe to the Lord glory that is due His name. Even think of a verse in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory 
of God. This is how we're to live our lives, in ascribing God glory. And so when we get a concept of God's glory, when we begin to think about God's glory and how it not only impacts our church, but how it impacts us individually. It impacts the way that I husband. It impacts the way that I am a parent. It impacts the way that I pastor. It impacts all of the menial things that I feel like I'm doing, whether it's raking a lawn or whatever it is. It impacts absolutely everything. When you get a glimpse of the glory of the Lord, you then want to live your life in constant response to the glory of the Lord. And so we do so as individuals, 1 Corinthians 10.31, but then we also do as a church. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, says uh, the, the same concept. To Him, and in, in the church and in Christ Jesus, be glory forever and ever. We seek to bring God glory as a church. The ultimate motivation of our church and why we do what we do needs to be to give the Lord of glory the glory that is due His name. But then we also, as individuals and as a church, we need to be sure never to get in the way of the Lord receiving His glory. That we never try to take a piece of it for Himself. And that we echo the psalmist in Psalm 115, that it is not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Lord, I pray that you'll help us in our response, our constant response, that we are always looking to bring you the glory and praise that you are due. Lord, I pray that for, for all of us here and as, our, as a church, that our chief end will be to glorify God and to enjoy you. Lord, bringing you glory and living lives of obedience to you, it is enjoyment. It is so enriching and life-giving. And we pray, Lord, that you'll open our eyes to see that uh, as we continue down the path of obedience, that you are glorified in that. Help us to ascribe you glory 